0: All right, Salt City, good morning. It is great to be with you. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we're gonna be looking at chapter three, and we're gonna be tackling the subject of repentance. Now, immediately when we think of repentance, we think of somebody maybe with a bullhorn yelling at us, and maybe they have a sign And most of us have negative connotations when it comes to repentance. But I hope we're going to see this morning that repentance is the result of God's kindness to us. It's a grace. Although it's not pleasant in itself, it's good. It's kind of like uh, this memory I have as a kid. We went to this buffet called Ryan's Steakhouse. I don't know if Ryan's Steakhouse is, is still around, but it was a typical buffet where they've got like the Mexican taco bar and they've got the fried chicken and the mashed potatoes and they've got the salad bar and they have the pasta bar and all that. And I decided at about age 10 that I was going to make the most of this buffet. And so after plate four or five, I started feeling pretty sick and I asked my dad to accompany me to the bathroom. And it was a grace to me in the bathroom to go into the stall and be able to vomit up all of the food that I had just eaten. And that's because although the buffet was a good thing, I had misused the buffet and filled my stomach too full. And so I had to get rid of what I had just put in. And, and in, a, in a similar way, we misuse the things of the earth. God has given us um, sexuality and he's given us food and he's given us material possessions for good. But what we tend to do is we tend to misuse those things. And as a result, we need to repent. We need to confess our sin and we need to turn to a different way. And in this way, we return to right relationship with God. So it's actually his kindness and his grace that leads us to repentance. It's a good thing. And so we're gonna see in this passage in Matthew 3 that repentance is the threshold to God. It's actually by confessing and admitting who we are and where we're at that we can return to right relationship with God and walk with him in faithfulness. And so we're gonna see three incentives to repent From Matthew chapter 3. The first incentive to repent is a different kingdom. So we're looking at verses 1 through 6 to start. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. When Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So we've got this strange character. In the other gospels, we learn that John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. He's out in the wilderness and he's preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's wearing strange clothes. He's got camel clothes hair around him. He's probably got a big beard, long hair, kind of a scraggly looking character. And he's eating locusts, which would be like a grasshopper dipped in honey. This is a countercultural guy whose lifestyle was the exact opposite of the religious leaders of that day, who tend to live very materialistically, very focused on themselves. And John the Baptist is living out in the wilderness, and he's also preaching a countercultural message. It's always been countercultural, calling people to repent. And his reasoning for people to repent is that a new kingdom is at hand. Now, when people thought in that day of the Messiah coming to restore his kingdom, they thought politically, they thought when the Messiah came, that he was going to overtake Rome, that he was going to sit on a literal throne, and that he was going to rule and reign, that the nation of Israel would be restored, and that the people of God would be sort of at the center of the universe of Politics. But John the Baptist has something very different in mind, and we get an idea of what he has in mind from the context of these verses. So if you look at verse three in this passage, it had said, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven as is at hand." And then it says, "For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, "The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight." And in that passage, Matthew is referring to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. So basically what he's saying is, John the Baptist is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, flip over to Isaiah 40, and I'll show you what that kingdom is going to be characterized by. So that's what we're going to do. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5 says this and fills in the context Of what this kingdom looks like for us. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this passage was written when God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah, were in captivity to Babylon. It's not, unsim- it's not dissimilar from the time when John the Baptist was on the earth and the people of God were in Roman captivity, so to speak. And in both contexts, God gives the same message. And it's not a message of a political kingdom coming, but a kingdom of an entirely different kind. The kind of kingdom where God would come to comfort his people and to speak tenderly to them that their warfare is ended. Now, immediately when we think of warfare, we think of literal physical warfare, but he fills in what he means, what will characterize this kingdom and the warfare of this kingdom ending. And that is that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this is the kind of kingdom that John the Baptist is anticipating. He is saying there's a king and his primary mission in coming to the earth will not be to assume political power, but will be to save people from their sins and down to our very day, especially in this time in our country, people are looking to politicians to fix the problems of the world in a way that only Jesus can. And Jesus does this in a way that is completely counterintuitive and in some ways, ridiculous to us. He doesn't assume the throne of political power. Instead, he pardons people from their sin. So, you want to come into the kingdom of God. What God offers you is forgiveness from your sin. Do you want this kingdom? Do you want the comfort of God? Do you want the tenderness of God in your life. Think about how amazing this is, that God doesn't come to the earth to crush his enemies, but instead he comes to welcome us, those who were his enemies, as friends. He comes with comfort. And in this way, what Isaiah 40 says is that the glory of the Lord is revealed. Here's the counterintuitive thing that the Bible is teaching us. The glory of the Lord is first revealed in his gentleness toward us. It's not revealed with fireworks. It's not revealed through political power. It's revealed by God becoming human, walking among us and offering us salvation in his name. Just a short time after this passage in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 42, verse three, God gives us amazing illustration of what he's like. It says a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. So here's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like our souls as human beings are like a candle that was once burning hot but because of our sin and folly and rebellion against God has been blown out. And, and there's just this, this little wick and it barely has smoke coming off of it. Just, just a little bit of smoke. We have almost no passion for God. We have almost no love for God. Our, our lives are characterized by actually running away from God. And John the Baptist is picking up this language and he's saying that Jesus is the God who comes to the smoldering wick of our hearts. And he's so gentle and he's so tender that you can just see him barely blowing on this smoldering wick. He's so gentle, he's so compassionate, and he's so kind that he's actually able to bring the flame back to life. So here's what we need more than anything else as an incentive to repent. We need to know that Jesus is the gentle King, that Jesus is gentle enough that he can handle our messed up lives. My encouragement to you is that it's good news that Jesus didn't come to set up a glorious political kingdom, but that he came to save sinners because that is what we need. We need the gentle savior. Okay. So this is good news to those who see their need for those who are ready to repent because this type of kingdom is at hand, but it's horrible for posers. And that's what John the Baptist points us to next, because what we need, secondly, as an incentive to repent, is inner transformation. Hey, look, let's look at verses 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So let me set the scene for you here. So there's the outcasts of society coming out, to this river, to be baptized by John the Baptist. And they are willing to confess their sins publicly. They're willing to own up to who they are and sort of just vomit out their sin. But then in the midst of this awesome revival going on out in the desert, you have a big white youth group van pull up. And out of the youth group van you have the youth group kids and their religious leaders. And they jump out of the van and they're standing watching. And you can kind of imagine them sneering at what's going on and thinking, wow, I can't believe that people are this corrupt and are this bad. And John the Baptist sees the religious leaders sneering and looks over at them, and has some choice words for them. He calls them a brood of vipers. He compares them to trees, and he says that God has his axe at the root of their trees, and he's about to chop them down. And he also compares them to chaff. So wheat would be Picked up with a winnowing fork, this big tool, it would be thrown up into the air and the heavy grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away and then it would be burnt. And he's saying, Your lifestyle proves that you are not living lives of repentance. You guys are posers. You guys are hypocrites, and you are not living in line with what God says. Why were the religious leaders of this time, and why are religious people of our time, including leaders, living like this? And we get an indication in the text when John the Baptist says that they pres- presume to say to themselves, we have Abraham as our father. What are they saying? Why are they not repenting? They're saying, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I come from a Christian family. I went to a Christian school. I'm in a Christian youth group. And so they're appealing to their family pedigree instead of appealing to the active work of God in their life that leads them to repentance. See, the mark of a Christian, a true believer in Jesus, is someone who owns up and who stops posing. And so here's the opportunity I want to give to those of you who are in this camp. You're religious, you come from the right family, you went to the right school, you go to a good church, but you haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and there has not been inner transformation in your life. My encouragement to you is the hard words and warnings of this passage are meant to be God's grace to you, are meant to be. His kindness to you. They're meant to be like a hammer that is to shatter your hard heart and allow you to see that you are not genuine in your faith. So part of my God story is that I grew up in a Christian family and we went to church every Sunday and I was part of the youth group. And I would have been on that church van. And in fact, I was on a church van like that. And we went on a mission trip when I was in eighth grade to West Virginia. And we were there painting houses and serving some people in poor communities and worshiping at night and and studying God's word. But I was also putting cookies crumbled cookies into my youth leader's sleeping bag before he went to bed at night. I was also hitting on youth group girls on the trip and just raising hell, pretty much. And one of my youth leaders pulled me aside on that trip and spoke some hard words to me. He said, Drew, I know you come from a good family, but I don't see evidence in your life Based on what I'm seeing on this trip, that you are a genuine Christian. And it was the first time in my life that anyone had ever challenged whether I was a Christian or not. And those hard words really broke my hard heart. And I remember going home from that youth group trip and really for the first time in my life beginning to seek God through his word, and understanding that I needed the grace of God as much as anybody else. And that's what John the Baptist is pointing to us here, that all of us, no matter how religious we are, what kind of family we came from, whether we knelt beside the bed when we were six years old and prayed to ask Jesus into our life, we prove our genuineness, not through sinless perfection, but through this ongoing life of repentance, which leads to inner transformation. See, when we repent, what we do is we welcome the Holy Spirit, who John the Baptist says that Jesus will send to us. In uh, verse 11, he says that he baptizes water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what we do when we repent is we welcome the Holy Spirit into our life who comes in and refines us and purifies us from the inside out so that we're no longer posers, but we begin to genuinely produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And this comes counterintuitively, not when we act like we have everything together, but when we admit that we don't and that we need the grace of God in our lives. Then we become like John. Isn't that a great contrast? The contrast between John and the Pharisees. They're acting like they have it all together, that they're good, that they don't need to repent. And John the Baptist's testimony is... I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He says, I'm not the hero. Jesus is the hero. I'm not even worthy to touch Jesus' sandals, which would have been, been the dirtiest part of his wardrobe. He would have been walking in, in muddy manure filled streets. And he's saying, I'm not even worthy to touch Jesus' sandals because he's so far superior to me. See, we can't be the hero of our story and have Jesus be the hero of our story at the same time we have to choose. Okay, so here's the last question. What happens when I keep messing up again and again? Can I ever repent enough? And the third incentive we get for repentance, I think is the most important one. And it's the offer of free righteousness. Okay. Verses 13 through 17 say this, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus shows up on the scene for the first time. And he comes to John. John's out in the wilderness, baptizing people who are confessing their sin and repenting of their sin. And Jesus comes to him and says that he needs John to baptize him. And and here we have John who's living this radical life, calling other people to repent and repenting himself. And he looks at Jesus and he says, no, no, no. I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. He recognizes that Jesus is sinlessly perfect. And he recognizes that he is deeply sinful. And Jesus says to him, not, oh, you're right. I'll baptize you. He says, no, I need you to baptize me, but it's not because I'm here to confess my sin. He says, I need you to baptize me so that I can fulfill all righteousness. Now, here's what the word fulfill means in this verse. It means to cause, to abound, to furnish or supply liberally. It means to overflow righteousness. So here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not getting baptized to confess my sin. I'm getting baptized to overflow righteousness or moral perfection or moral beauty to other people. I'm getting baptized to give away my righteousness to sinful people not in order to confess with everyone else that I am not righteous. So John says, okay, if that's your purpose in this, then I'll baptize you. And so he baptizes Jesus and this amazing scene happens. Jesus comes out of the water and to put his stamp of approval on what Jesus is doing, this crowd of people. So you imagine The Pharisees are there who have refused to repent of their sin. And you've also got all these messed up, sinful people, these outcasts of society. There's Gentiles there. Everybody's there. And they're all looking and Jesus comes out of the water and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So what's going on here? God the Father is saying that he is well pleased with his son and his mission to overflow with righteousness to those around him. He is on board with his son giving away his righteousness as a free gift. Now, this is amazing because in our society, what people do with their moral goodness is they paraded around for others. This is what the Pharisees were known for too. They paraded around for others so that when people look at them, they say, you're righteous and I'm not. And so people use their social media accounts to do this, to make certain righteous declarations, to separate themselves from others. And so they parade their righteousness. But what Jesus is doing is not parading his righteousness. Instead, he's offering his righteousness as a gift. Now, imagine that righteousness is water. And imagine that the world is a desert. Here's the difference between religious people and Jesus. The religious people have a table set up, and they have a sign that says, we have water, we have righteousness, we have water. And then you go up to your t- their table and you say, oh, you guys have water, can I have some? And they say, no, our water's for us. Can you show us your water? No, we can't show you our water because we're protecting our water and we don't want anyone to have it or to see it. And here's what Jesus does. He opens up a water park in the middle of the desert. And so you can see the water flowing. You can come jump in the pool. He's got a big bar in the water park where you can drink all the water you want. And it's just overflowing with water. And he says, anyone who's thirsty, come and have a drink. And that's because Jesus is overflowing with righteousness. The Pharisees are pretending that they have righteousness. Jesus is overflowing with righteousness. He's not parading his righteousness, but he's offering it to all of us. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to be righteous, you're not going to earn Goodness, by repenting enough, but you come to me and I'll give it to you for free. I'll take all of your sin and I'll give you my moral perfection and beauty so that when God looks at you, he will also say of you, this is my beloved son or daughter, with who I am well pleased. Now, how can we have the guarantee that we'll get this righteousness when we confess and own up to our sins? We get this guarantee because this baptism of Jesus in water is actually pointing forward to an even greater baptism. Luke 12, 50, Jesus reminds us of his greater baptism that's about to come. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, when Jesus was dunked by John in the river, it was pointing forward to a greater baptism and that baptism was the baptism of death. See, Jesus would be dunked under the water of death on the cross. He would be dead for three days, but the death could not hold him. And so he would be dunked under death, but he would be pulled up above the water and rise again from death. And what Jesus offers us at the cross is that we would be united with him in his baptism so that when he died, we died. And when he was in the grave, we were in the grave. And when he rose from death, we rose from death. And so when we repent of our sins and we place our faith in Jesus, we're united with him and we are clothed forever in his righteousness. And because we're now overflowing with righteousness and God is pleased with us, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus did, we can continually own up when we don't live according to the way that God wants us to live. We can live lives of repentance. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the countercultural offer to live lives of repentance, to actually be able to own up to who we are, to our real sin, to our real failure, to our real faults. And thank you that in that you don't reject us, but you actually clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus. Would we not be like the Pharisees who, who stand next to the river of repentance and say, yeah, I don't need that because I'm already perfect. I've already got righteousness to spare. But instead, would we be like those sinful people who confessed, just owned up to who they were, got in the river, confessed their sins, and found themselves to be righteous in Jesus? Pray this all in his name, for his sake. Amen.